Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, one journalist who's hoping to become an elected official and another covering two high-profile battles over who gets to control our state government. Hi, and welcome to 112BK. I'm Jared Murphy, sitting in for Ashley Ford. Lots of local and state politics on the menu today. We'll get the chance to hear a pretty unusual perspective, that of a reporter turned candidate. While another will talk about the governor's race and the coming fight over which party will be running things in Albany next January. But first, these headlines. April 1st may be April Fool's Day, but this year at least, if some people get their way, April 3rd could end up being a day of fear and violence. A movement that began last month in the U.K. is urging people to turn the 3rd into Punish a Muslim Day, complete with what Newsweek describes as a points-based reward system that specifies earning 50 points if you throw acid in the face of a Muslim and 1,000 points to burn or bomb a mosque. Taking the threat seriously, the NYPD has increased security at city mosques and Islamic centers. Here in Brooklyn, Borough President Eric Adams countered the hate with a plea for tolerance, saying, quote, Our message must be just as loud. Not punish a Muslim. Let's embrace a Muslim. Let's embrace a Christian. Let's embrace a person of Jewish faith. Let's embrace the diversity that this city has to offer. A different Brooklyn politician is in the news for a far less noble reason. Pamela Harris, the New York State Assembly member representing Coney Island and Bay Ridge, is resigning before she has to face trial on federal corruption charges. She says she waited until the past weekend's vote on the state budget deal. And with that done, presumably Harris can get to work on a potential deal with the feds, although she has pled not guilty to the 11 accounts leveled against her. These include defrauding both FEMA and the nonprofit for children she ran prior to her election in 2015 and using some of the cash to shop at Victoria's Secret. Her trial is expected to begin in July. Coming up on the show, we'll get into that budget deal in Albany, including its failure to include congestion pricing aimed at easing traffic problems in the city. At least they debated the plan. But are any politicians looking into the pedestrian overcrowding on the Brooklyn Bridge? especially when the weather finally turns nice and so many people turn out, you feel less like you're out for a stroll in the sunshine and more like you're trapped in a crowded elevator? According to Streets Blog NYC, this past Saturday, one person felt so uncomfortable, he tweeted, we're all stuck here on the Brooklyn Bridge. Please don't let anyone else on. Sheesh. Rather than shuffle your way across the bridge, maybe you should hop the bus, ride in comfort, and have a drink while you're at it. No, this isn't the MTA's attempt at making up for all our commuting miseries. It's a new pop-up bar housed in a double-decker bus that will start making the rounds later this month. And it's got a theme, too, the tea party from Alice in Wonderland. As reported in Time Out New York, it's called the Mad Hatter's G&T, as in gin and tonic, party bus. You can register for tickets at madhattersbus.com. Why not try it, have a few cocktails, and then sleep it off like the Dormouse? Up next, our first conversation. This time last year, Ross Barkin was sitting on my side of the line between reporters and the candidates and officials they cover. For several years, in the pages of The Village Voice, The Guardian, Gothamist, The Observer, and City Limits, he wrote about policy and politics. But then he decided to do more than write about it, announcing his candidacy for the state senate seat in District 22, covering Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst, Gravesend, and parts of Sheepshead Bay and Midwood, and currently held by the only Republican senator from Brooklyn, Martin Golden. 
Barkin's got a primary battle and a general election fight ahead of him, but was kind enough to join us here today. Welcome, Ross. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. So what is the case against Martin Golden? The case against him is that he's a failed state senator. He sat in the Republican majority now for 15 years. He has not delivered on most policies and issues that people care about. We talk about transportation. He sits on the MTA Capital Review Board. He has done literally nothing for the subways, for the buses, whether it's advocacy, whether it's funding, whether it's standing up to, I would say, the, the incompetence and quasi-corruption in the MTA. You look at his record, he's socially conservative, he's anti-choice, he's anti-same-sex marriage, he is an Islamophobe. He is anti-women. Why do you say he's an Islamophobe? He, he, well, he once said the 9-11 hijackers came from Bay Ridge, and I'll, I'll let people—let that one sink in for a second. He's someone who's deeply out of touch with the community. He is an unabashed Donald Trump supporter, and I think he needs to go. I think I'm the person to defeat him, and I believe I will defeat him. Why do you think he was elected, I think, in 2002 initially? Mm -hmm. In some of the elections he's had since he was not even challenged in most of those where he was, he's won overwhelmingly. This is a district that, registration-wise, is two-to-one Democratic, maybe a little more than that. Why has he been elected and re-elected consistently if he is this failed state senator? As I've documented in my journalism career, we have a very dysfunctional Democratic Party. It's dysfunctional nationally and it's dysfunctional locally. We have a weak, milquetoast Democratic establishment that for years did not challenge Marty Golden. There were backroom deals. There were theories about running candidates in certain years and not in others. He was unopposed for three straight election cycles after his win. So when Obama became president, Marty Golden had no Democrat facing him on the ballot. When you had the, the big Democratic wave in 2006, when uh, Democrats took back the House and Nancy Pelosi became speaker, Marty Golden did not have an opponent. He did not have an opponent in 2016. Think about that. And so when that happened, that was my first inkling that I had to step up, because we have a, a failed Democratic Party locally, nationally, and we have to do a much better job. So you do have, at this point anyway, a primary opponent, Andrew Gennardis. He was mm -hmm. on the show recently. We also will invite Senator Golden on. Uh, what is your case to Democratic voters? Mm -hmm. He ran against Golden several years ago, did reasonably well compared to other opponents. Mm -hmm. uh, why are you a better opponent against Martin Golden mm -hmm. than, than him? I'm an independent. I'm progressive. I don't come from any particular party establishment, any faction. Southern Brooklyn politics is deeply factionalized. I don't have that history. I'm someone who can work with anyone. If a Democrat does something wrong, I'm going to say they did something wrong. I'm a critic of the governor. I'm a critic of the mayor. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're not delivering for my community, if you're not taking a stand on the issues that matter to all of us, I'm going to call you out. And also, I have a lot of respect for Andrew. He ran in 2012. He talks a lot about the fact that he won Bay Ridge. I'm from Bay Ridge. I'm a lifelong Bay Ridge person, beautiful community. He won the neighborhood. He lost the district by 18 points. We can't win talking about one neighborhood. I'm someone who's been out in Gravesend, out in Marine Park. I lived in Cheapside Bay for three years. You have to go everywhere to beat him. I plan to go everywhere, and I think that's why I am the best candidate here. So you mentioned delivering for the community. What do you most want to deliver? You, you win in September. You win in November. You're inaugurated, uh, sworn into mm -hmm. the Senate. 
what are you going to bring back in terms of legislation, policy, goodies for the, we, for the we Navy? Need, we need equitable education funding. Governor Cuomo does not comply with, with the campaign for fiscal equity suit. Marty Golden does not fight for that money. We need that money. We need to fix our transportation. The MTA is a failed bureaucracy, doesn't know how to spend money. It also needs more funding. It's, it's a two-part problem. So we need someone who's going to be advocating for spending reform at the MTA, procurement reform, which sounds very boring, but it's very important, and also looking for, for, for revenue streams, whether it's a millionaire's tax, whether it's congestion pricing, whatever form it takes. I'm someone who wants to deliver in health care, support the New York Health Act, bringing universal health care to New York State, being someone who can actually speak for the whole community. We have a very diverse community. We have an Arab-American community. We have a Chinese community, a Pakistani community. And I'll be honest with you, Marty Golden speaks for really one community, and I think we all know what that community is. I'm going to speak for everyone. I'm going to stand for everyone. I'm not going to leave anyone behind. Would you have voted for the budget that was uh, passed last week? No. Why not? It's a bad budget. It didn't deliver on most of the priorities that progressives, Democrats, regular people are looking for. You talk about the fact that there's no ethics reform. There's no early voting. There were no protections for the uh, LGBT community agenda that did not get into that budget. There was really... Um, nothing on any any of the big ticket items and, and I'm glad that there were there were certain pieces in there that were good design build for the BQE was nice 250 million dollars for NYCHA that's like if if you sawed my arm off and then you offered me an energy bar and said okay you know you're going to replace some of your calories here I mean this is a this is a housing authority that needs was it 18 20 billion dollars in, in capital repairs and we're supposed to all clap our hands and celebrate that the state just threw a threw a little uh piece of change at it? No. So this, this was a bad budget. Speaking of NYCHA, which is important to a lot of Brooklynites, does the governor have any kind of a point when he talks about the mayor's oversight of NYCHA management at NYCHA? We know there's a money issue, mm -hmm. but is he correct to say that NYCHA has been mismanaged? Under sure. I, I thought Bill de Blasio should have fired Sheila Latoy after the, the, lead, the lead paint scandal and the fact that it was proven that we were not adequately testing for, for, lead, for lead paint, that we were misleading people. I think NYCHA has been mismanaged. That being said, Governor Cuomo has mismanaged the MTA, so it, it's the pot calling the kettle black here. Look, if, if Andrew Cuomo wants to own NYCHA, take it over, fund it in ways the federal government used to and doesn't anymore, I welcome that. I, I welcome the attention being paid to public housing. I think Bill de Blasio needs to do a much better job. I just can't get excited about the fact that we're getting $250 million from the state and this new monitor, of which I don't particularly understand, and this is going to make everything better. I, I just don't see it. Uh, congestion pricing is something you support? I do. I support, though, with caveats. Uh, the Move New York plan in its initial incarnation I thought was a good idea. I think we need toll equity. We have to bring down the tolls on the Verrazano Bridge. We have to bring down the tolls on the RFK Bridge. If you're going to add tolls on the East River Bridges, at least bring down what is an astronomical toll in, in my backyard. We also need to make sure this revenue is going to transportation, the lockbox. We, we talk a lot about the lockbox. Money has been raided from the MTA 
for years. This is money that was supposed to go to transportation upgrades that ends up getting spent in all types of places. It just goes into the general fund. There's a story about how transit money went to a ski resort upstate. That all has to end. I don't want to be putting tolls on here with no guarantee that this money is not going to infrastructure and transportation upgrades. We've got to spend on the signaling network. Our signaling network is almost 100 years old. It's the reason the trains don't run. It's the reason why there are all these delays. If we're not spending on that, if we're spending on tiles, if we're spending on Wi-Fi, I love Wi-Fi, but all, all it does for me is tell me that I can tweet and say how late my train is. It doesn't do anything for regular people. So, as mentioned, you were a journalist this time last year mm -hmm. and for many years before that, uh, and then you decided to become uh, a candidate. Um, talk about that evolution, and also, you know, ha have any of the people you covered before you made this shift said, hey, wait, we thought you were coming at us as a journalist, as someone expressing a journalistic opinion, were you just laying the groundwork for your political career? Sure. So, um, on the, fir the first part of that question, it was definitely a, a tough decision. I only really started to get serious about it maybe in, in the late summer in terms of my thought process. And I, again, my first inkling was Marty Golden unopposed in 2016. Then you have the transportation crisis in 2017, the fact that no one was really stepping up to either offer a solution or hold those accountable for what was a, a widespread failure that could pose an existential crisis for New York City in the long term. It was, it was definitely tough for me because had, I've had to give up a lot of writing. I've had to give up income. I've had to give up something I love a lot. I still do occasionally national columns for The Guardian. I occasionally opine locally, but not the way I once did. And in terms of um, sources or, or people like that reacting to it, I haven't gotten any of that. What I'll say is I'm a journalist. I'm also a columnist. I'm a commentator. I have made my views on politics, on the process, on issues very plain years before I was running. Nothing that I've written is inconsistent with my campaign. In fact, you, know, you can look at what, what I've written and look what I'm saying now. It, it's what I believe in. And my columns are my columns. Honestly, if I was laying a groundwork for a campaign, I would have written a lot less controversial things or, or made a lot less enemies. I would have been a lot nicer to people. I mean, I, I've I've been yelled at by the mayor. I've been yelled at by the governor. I've been yelled at by local politicians. Um, I, I've been, been willing to hold just about anyone accountable. And, you know, now I'm here, and this is what I believe in, and I, I expect to win. So you have a very few seconds left, and I'm curious. You used to cover politics. Now you're a politician. Yeah. Obvious question is, any surprises, anything you've learned from kind of jumping the fence that jumps out at you? There are a lot of demands made on your time that journalists don't see. Fundraising is the biggest part, having to sit down in a room and call people and ask them for money. It's the worst part of politics. And if you're not seeing a politician out on the street shaking hands or down on the subway, they may be somewhere raising money. And, and that's the sick part of the system. But it's also when you're running in a state senate race, a little bit smaller than a congressional, got to raise money, got to raise a lot of it. So that, that, that's the, that was the biggest realization is how much money goes into it because until you, you actually experience it, you don't really know it. And it, it's made me even more a proponent of uh, campaign finance reform than before. Ross Barkin, former journalist, our journalist in limbo at the moment, and a Democrat running for 22nd state Senate seat. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you.
For those of you who watched this show's predecessor, BK Live, you'll remember that our next guest used to come on every other Thursday as part of Dick and Dave, talking about fun things to do on the weekend, usually while a bartender made everyone in the studio a cocktail. Nice gig. But like our last guest, Dave Colon has gotten into politics lately, trading concerts for campaigns and parties for, well, parties. Lately, Dave's been covering one particular group you could describe as intraparty, the IDC, or Independent Democratic Conference, New York State senators who many on the left might describe as Republicans dressed in Democrats' clothing. He's also got a new article out on a politician named Nixon. No, not that one, Cynthia Nixon, who's gone from running lines to running for office. We'll talk about all that and more now with Dave Colon. Welcome to 112BK and welcome back to the studio. Sorry that we have no alcohol on hand. We're going to try to be very sober about this. Very it's okay. Serious. It's okay. I can always Please get a drink afterwards. Stop smiling. Uh, so what is the case against the IDC? Uh, well, it's kind of a confusing mishmash of backroom Albany stuff, but essentially there's a large number of progressive groups that have, especially since the 2016 election and the, the results of that, have been paying more attention and say that the IDC, because, excuse me, they work with uh, Republican leadership in the Senate— keeps uh, progressive legislation from getting advanced in the body. Uh, Single-payer health care, uh, the uh, agenda the, um, would uh, add uh, sexual—sorry, uh, uh, gender to uh, the state's uh, sexual harassment laws, uh, a law that would codify Roe v. Wade uh, in the state's in the state's laws, things like that. Uh, and they say that because there is a kind of—it's not a power-sharing agreement anymore. Uh, that, but the IDC has shared power with them. They don't conference with Democrats now, despite a nominal numerical advantage in the body. Uh, it just kind of puts the kibosh on any progressive legislation. And the IDC has been around for a number of years, and their story is right, that they came out of this time when there was that, that Democratic coup and the Democrats had the majority but kind of blew it, and they came in to kind of restore order and try to get something done. Do you think that that argument has any merit to it? I think that maybe it used to. You know, a lot of the people who were the four amigos all went to jail. Uh, so it's hard to say that that they didn't have a, a reason to exist when they started. But now it's entirely new leadership in the Democratic Party. So it's very hard to say, well, you know, John Sampson used to be in charge, so we still need to be—but he's not anymore. Andrea Stewart-Cousins is leading the party, and it's a question of— do you think that things are going to be chaotic again if the Democrats are entirely in control of this? Or is it now that, you know, they get—they have a lot more power being on their own? So I think that it's a little harder to argue that they are a necessary force at this point, just because the entire Democratic leadership has turned over since that brief— chaotic moment. Another argument you'll hear is that, well, really, the Democrats don't have the majority because Cynthia Felder from Brooklyn is elected as a Democrat, but he actually does openly caucus with the Republicans. And so if you really want to solve things, you've got you to gotta target him. It's not really about the IDC. Uh, yes. Cynthia is an issue all to himself. He has alternately made noises about coming back to the uh, larger Democratic conference. He has said, oh, actually, I'm happy with Republicans, and it kind of looks like we might end up with this thing where, depending on the results of these special elections uh, this month, if there are 31 Democrats, 31 Republicans, and Simcha, it's going to be a matter of who is going to give him uh, armed guards in every public school, which is his one big thing. Uh, who's who's going to go, OK, you can have that. 
just conference with us. Uh, it's a weird, and I don't know if that's a great way to run the government, uh, but he is definitely... He's he's playing the game very well. You could say that much for him. You know, I did a, an article on the IDC uh, back when I worked at Gothamist a long time ago, and uh, there was uh, some somebody said, well, you know, he told Andrea Stewart Cousins that he was going to come back, but nobody from the IDC would, and I tried to track that down, and nobody could really confirm it. So he's been playing both sides to get what he wants about as effectively as anybody who has essentially unlimited power in, in, in Albany would. So the IDC itself, I think, is it's eight members. Now right? it's eight, yes. The majority of them are within New York City. Uh, uh, yes. And uh, one of them is from Brooklyn, Jesse Jesse Hamilton. Hamilton uh, yeah, he's the only Brooklyn member. Right. Their leader is Jeff Klein from the Bronx, who got caught up in some of the Me Too uh, furor yes. this year. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, doesn't look great, obviously, in the uh, way that they uh, did the uh, backroom deal—not backroom deal, the four men in a room when they were working out the anti-sexual harassment uh, policies in the state budget. Uh, there was a whole lot of going on there where uh, there were, uh, you know, the woman, uh, Erica Vladimir, who uh, accused him of forcibly kissing him—kissing uh, her, uh, was saying that she didn't want it worked out that way, and a lot of other victims were saying—or uh, people who said that they've suffered sexual harassment were also saying that we want this done out in the open. And at the very least, people were saying that Andrew Stewart Cousins should have been in the room when they were doing those uh, negotiations during the budget. Now, many of those IDC members face primary challenges this year. Uh, what prospects do those challengers have? They're kind of—it's an uphill battle for them, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, beyond even the normal going up against an incumbent kind of thing, uh, the members of the IDC get to put their name on a lot of legislation uh, that they at least say that they are uh, in favor of. Jesse Hamilton shows up uh, at, uh, you know, any kind of uh, traffic accident, uh, traffic crash and will say, you know, I want more speed cameras. And, uh, you know, Jose Peralta also got a lot of good press for that after that horrible uh, Park Slope crash. Uh, uh, but And they also get, you know, good pork to bring back to their uh, legislative districts. They, because of the fact that they have this power-sharing-esque agreement with the Republican Party, so they get to be on chairs of committees, they get to kind of get a larger share of the budget for home. And also just, I think that a lot of these candidates, uh, they're all—except for Robert Jackson, who's running against uh, Maricel Alcantara, uh, they're all first-time candidates, and they all are— running, trying to explain these weird shenanigans uh, in Albany, where, where they go, well, okay, they say they're Democrats, but they're really not, because they power share with Republicans, but they're not Republicans, but then, you know, you, you fall asleep if you don't—if you're not really into this, and especially if you can say, but Jesse Hamilton, you know, fixed uh, the church in my neighborhood with the grant that he got us. Uh, you know, Jeff Klein fixed our baseball fields. W what's the matter? And there also is this unity deal, right, where, depending on the special elections later this month, maybe the IDC comes back into the fold. Yes. And that already has had a bunch of complications, because now these people don't necessarily love each other after, you know, what has been years of infighting. Uh, and there's, again, the question of Simcha, what's he going to do? I saw today John Flanagan was getting interviewed somewhere, and he already said, Simcha said he's going to stay with us, so I don't see what the big deal is with these special elections. Jeff Klein likes working with me, and I like working with him, so I don't see why we need to change anything. 
Uh, and the Westchester election isn't necessarily in the bag for the Democratic Party. So if they win that and we get 31-31 and 1, it's the, the deal is, yeah, the IDC comes back, uh, and that way all these primary challengers don't get the backing of larger party apparatus. Uh, if the deal falls apart, well, who the hell knows, then all of a sudden maybe you've got the party— putting resources behind these uh, primary challengers, and there's a little bit less of an uphill battle. But that is not—it's it's very much up in the air. And then you add Cynthia Nixon to this mix, and, and what effect does she have potentially on the IDC and on these challengers? So the thing with Cynthia Nixon, uh, when I spoke to—I uh, spoke to some analysts, I spoke to activists, and they obviously had a different opinion of what her candidacy could mean for the IDC. Uh, there were uh, some analysts who I spoke to who said, well, these IDC races still come down to very, very local politics. It's not really a matter of the thing where you've got a really popular, say, you know, gubernatorial candidate at the top of the ticket, and he brings the whole party with him because it's an intra-party fight. Even people who say, oh, you know, I kind of like Cynthia Nixon still might say, but I also like Jose Peralta. I like what he's been doing for us. So it's not something that is a guarantee or, uh, you know, there's uh, very little research about what happens with coattail arguments, uh, coattail effects, when it's an intra-party fight. Uh, and there's also—but, on the other hand, uh, the anti-IDC activists have said, well, this is going to let us explain what's going on with the IDC way more easily, because she's going to talk about it, because she's going to highlight what's going on in Albany. Uh, and she's going to say that Cuomo has, if not fomented, at least tolerated this arrangement. Yes, exactly. Right? And she's already saying that a little bit. She hasn't made it a centerpiece of her campaign. Who knows? You know, there's, there's a lot of time left, so who knows what's going to happen. But it's definitely going to be something where, you know, like I said, where the thing where you start trying to explain what the IDC is, and you, you get all confused. If somebody with the media attention that Cynthia Nixon gets is going to be saying this, it might make it a little bit easier for these people in all their districts to say, it's the thing Cynthia Nixon was talking about. That's what we're trying to tell you. So you've got the April 24th special election, a primary in September. What are the two or three races, kind of quickly, that you're, you're most looking at? Uh, well, I live in the uh, Zellner-Myrie-Jesse Hamilton race, uh, so that one is obviously interesting to me. Uh, on a personal level, uh, so I'm keeping an eye on that one. Uh, I think that, you know, it's the, the people who were uh, the most recent uh, people to join the IDC, I think, are the most vulnerable. Uh, Ross, actually, who was just on before me, wrote something about that. Uh, so with uh, Marisol and Robert Jackson, uh, because Marisol joined uh, in, you know, right when she got elected in 2016. Jesse joined in 2016. Jesse Hamilton did. Uh, and Jose Peralta, who's facing off with uh, Jessica Ramos. And also, actually, there's a third person, uh, Andrea Mara. Uh, are, so they're all going to be running. And that's interesting because it's a three-way race. So you never know if you somehow manage to split the protest or split the more liberal vote. And Peralta walks in with, you know, 34 percent. Well, Dave Colon, thank you for mixing us that cocktail of savvy political analysis. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you. Tomorrow on 112BK, a conversation covering mass incarceration and the war on drugs with the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice. And at the midpoint of Passover week, we'll talk about food justice with the head of Mospia, a kosher soup kitchen. Plus, Brooklyn-based theater group Target Margin will tell us about their new home, their first. Take care, and thanks for watching. 
112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>